Well, 3 a.m. tomorrow morning may not be a time on your calendar, but it is a time on our calendar. Um, My youngest two particularly just can't wait for that time to come because that's the time in which we will wake up, or actually, we will drive out of our driveway, hopefully, for our annual trip to California. And our kids are are very much excited for our much-needed and looking forward to vacation. They're looking forward to spending time on a a remote property in Northern California where we might see two cars a day. They are looking forward to um, seeing their cousins. And they are looking forward to swimming uh, in Grandma Lola and Grandpa Ray's pool. They're, they're looking forward to some hot days in the sun. Um, near, near the second half of the trip, the older part of the family is looking forward to um, a backpacking trip. Um, we're going to hike the Tahoe Rim Trail, and not the whole Tahoe Rim Trail, which goes all the way around Lake Tahoe, but we've only got three days, so we'll hike about 30 miles or so, spend a couple of nights there. And uh, we had such a good time backpacking last year that we're going to try it again this year. But last year we had an incident. Um, uh, It was in her second day of hiking, and Hannah all of a sudden had no energy left. She just ran out of gas, could hardly walk anymore, and so we just stopped right there uh, along the trail. Um, Gave Hannah a rest, and it was kind of scary for us, right? You were hiking out in the woods... And you're, like, not near civilization at all. And, you know, if she's having some kind of problem, what, what are we going to do? We, we didn't know. Uh, she's, we just knew she's lethargic, could, could barely walk. Our next campsite's about five, seven miles away, kind of down and through the woods around some place. Didn't know what to do. So after a time of rest and some power bars, she felt, she felt better. And at least we get up, and we did the only thing that we could do. We took her backpack... And uh, Carissa was the first one. She put it on hers. So Carissa took twice the load so that Hannah could walk the rest of the way without a backpack. And uh, we nursed her down the hill, nursed her down the path. When she needed to go slower, we went slower. When she needed to rest, we rested. And uh, when she needed to lie down, which she did, uh, at least on another occasion, we just stopped and just waited another uh, whatever, 45 minutes or so until she was ready to go. We finally arrived at camp, and at this camp there was uh, there was a little store there, and uh, we got some salsa con queso and uh, some chips, and Hannah ate all those, and we had a we had a um, a shake, and um, Hannah was feeling fine. So what happened was she just just depleted her food, and if you know Hannah, she's like like Miss Miss Energy. She had depleted her food, and so this year, as we go, we're going to make sure we have enough food, and Hannah has pleaded that we would have enough food for her because she's always hungry on the trail. Um, but that's a good illustration of our text this morning. My message is entitled, Bear One Another's Burdens. Uh, it's the picture we receive uh, from the text, uh, from, from my illustration, is, is taking someone's pack, putting it in your own back, and carrying it for them so that they walk relatively unhindered. And it comes from Galatians chapter 6. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. It's a continuation of our theme all summer. We've, we've looked at just the one another's uh, in, in the New Testament. These are commands that God has given us of what we ought to do for and with one another. And I've preached these message in a, messages in order to paint a picture 
of the church that God calls us to be. Uh, we've looked at the commands to encourage one another. That is, by your, by your mouth and your voice, picking people up and building people up. Uh, we've looked at the command to pray for one another and to serve one another and love one another. Show hospitality to one another, honor one another, forgive one another, accept one another. And this morning, bear one another's burdens. I trust you can see it. It's just right there in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, let, let me read the first five verses of Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. I want to begin this morning exposition with verse 2, which is the command to bear with one another. And then we'll go to verse 1, and then we'll uh, slide quickly to verses 3 through 5. Because verse 2 is the command, verse 1 is, is a particular application of the command, and verses 3 through 5 is a warning in applying this command. That's my outline, a, a command, an application, and a warning. So let's begin with the command right here in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now in some regards, this is, this is talking about everything that I've tried to describe this summer as a church, is is bearing others' burdens. It, it speaks about seeing someone in need and, and you have the ability to meet that need and to help with that burden and taking the burden off their shoulders and placing it on your own because you are, are strong and sufficient to be able to do so. And, and that's an expression of love, for sure. Right? Love one another. It's an expression of that. It, it may take the form simply of an encouragement. Like you see someone really down, you want to build them up, you want to help them. And so you, you speak, speak them up to try to lighten their burden. It may take the form of hospitality. If someone has need of, of meal or shelter, is um, seeking to provide that, whatever you can. Loving a stranger, perhaps. Um, it, it may take the form of service. Like someone needs to have something done and they just don't have the resources for that. So you come in and do that. You bear that burden for you. It may be even as simple as, as prayer. And in fact, it may be that you're more burdened than they are burdened for a situation because they don't know what's happening to them. Let, let me show you an example of just what, what bearing burdens are. You know, our, our family's been blessed with some wonderful neighbors uh, both to the east and to the west of us. And they're an answer to prayer. When we moved into our house, um, these neighbors weren't there, but as house went for sale, we prayed earnestly for our neighbors to come. And who they would be, that they'd just be the right ones. We prayed for, for Christians to come, and we prayed for just helpful people, nice, and God has been gracious. Um, and in recent weeks, um, we've been incredibly busy. You know, I've been at Southern Seminary a couple of weeks and been at, gone at youth camp. So just been out of town a lot. And uh, my kids have been gone too because some have been at youth camp and they've just been all around. And Hannah just even told me today, you're, you're gone every night. That's what you are. So just busy this summer and Hannah's had some overnights. And Chris has had some overnights with her work. And, and it's just, just been a, a long time. And, and our neighbor noticed their grass was getting a little longer. And so as he mowed the lawn, he just, he just kept going right into our lawn. And he mowed it for us. And then, I, I don't know how he said but he said, no reciprocation. Just don't, don't try to pay me back. I know you guys are busy. He knows I'm a pastor of a church. And he's retired. 
And so that's one thing she do when you retire is you mow your lawn a lot. He mows the lawn a lot more than we mow our lawn. Um, but he likes it and it's some exercise for him. So it's kind of good for him. He, he likes doing it. But I think he knows uh, the busyness of my life and our life. And I think he even knows that to serve me in that way is to serve all of you, though he doesn't know you at all by face or by name. He's done it with joy. Um, a few days ago, I, I visited him and said, um, Gene, how, how, about, how about continuing to extend your, your help to us? Continue to mow our, our lawn. And he big smile on his face said, I would be glad to. So there's watching over our house. They're checking our mail. You know, if there's any problem at the house, uh, he's just going to, they're going to keep our eye, their eye on it. Uh, our neighbor is bearing our burden for us. And it's so good, and I understand he's he's not looking for a payback in any way. Though we have given him some banana bread, I think, and written a nice note and things like that. But but he's not he's not trying to say, okay, I'm doing this for you, so you do it for me. No, he's just he's just bearing our burden. Neighbor on the other side has mowed our lawn on a number of occasions as well, um, but particularly a neighbor on the other side, he's got a snowblower, and uh, we don't because I've got several snow throwers. And they happen to be, you know, like uh, 16 years old and 12 years old and 9 years old. They can throw the snow pretty well. But there are some times where our neighbor's snowblower has come by and uh, just taken care of our, our driveway, which we're thankful for. And he's not looking for any um, reciprocation at all. And in fact, in the last couple summers, we've got a deal. He says, hey, we're going out of town and uh, I buy the supplies and he seals our driveway for us. And just... Just that's the sort of neighbors we have. And we are so thankful to just have, have a, just a, a service mentality. They are bearing our burden. My dad is like that as well. Um, I often say that my dad retired to serve his grandchildren. What a wonderful thing. So if ever you have the opportunity to retire, don't retire to pursue your own pleasures. Retire to service and to help others. And it helps us incredibly. He often comes up, and I've told you that many times before. He comes up to help us with projects and Things like that, and it's it's wonderful. But that that's what it means to bear one another's burdens, and that sort of thing should happen in the church all the time, as there are opportunities, as there are are needs that are met, and, and many of those have been just as we talk about loving one another and serving one another and building one another up and showing hospitality. I'm I'm glad this summer to preach this series. I'm preaching to a choir. I think many of those things are happening for us, but it is an opportunity for us to. To share our, our burdens, right? When you, when you see a need, can you meet that? And also, this implies sharing the need. I know sometimes people are negligent about sharing that need. If there's a, a genuine need to say, I, I have this, can you help? And if someone has resources, perhaps they can come and help. Now, if, you, if you're too needy, they can just be like, whoa, that's like too much because it's too much. Some people have so many burdens that even five people can't bear them all. And that's a bit what uh, verse 5 is talking about. Each one will have to bear his own load. The load is different than a burden. A burden is a big burden. A load is just what you need to, need to carry. But it is something that should happen among us. I'm calling you to that. This is the summer series. And notice what it is. When we bear one another's burdens in the church, we fulfill the law of Christ. That is the law of love that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You say, oh, I put yourself in someone else's situation, right? The golden rule. We know what that's about. That can be done with service. Uh, this is the law of love that Paul mentions in chapter 5 and verse 14. 
The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you are bearing their burden and you're fulfilling the law of Christ, the royal law, the law of love. You know, that's not what the Pharisees did in their day. Rather than taking burdens upon their own shoulders, they pushed their burdens on other people's shoulders. Jesus said, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and do so, and observe, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them even with their finger. It's the way of the selfish legalist, always requiring of others what they themselves are not willing to lift if they have the ability. It's not the way the follower of Christ is. I mean, the whole idea of one another, all these commands, love and serve and pray for one another, is, is the mind of a Christian is an others-centered mind. Right? When someone has a need you can help, a follower of Christ will help. A follower of Christ will willingly take the burdens on himself. Now, to some point, of course, you can't, you can't overload that for sure. But, and if you start doing that, you can be overloaded. But to the, strength, to the extent which God gives you strength, a Christian will help whatever they can. And even if you don't have the resources, a Christian will pray. Taking up the burden of prayer for somebody. Now, stepping back from verse 2, we see verse 1 is a particular application of how to bear one another's burdens. And they're not, they're not physical burdens here. It's a spiritual burden we're talking about. We're talking about the burden of sin. Chapter 6, verse 1. And here we move from the command that I'm calling it, verse 2, of bearing one another's burdens. This is another command, but it's an application, I think, of the bigger command to bear one another's burden. Brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And right, here's the picture. Someone's going along in life, and there's some sin that they fall into. The idea here is that sin has captured them. Um, perhaps even here, I mean... It, it, it describes someone who didn't necessarily deliberately plan on sinning and execute the course, but more, more one um, that they just, they just bef- they acted and before they realized it was sin. It's not like they went premeditated against all the counsel of their godly friends to do something. It was that they, they just happened upon a, a sin of some way. It's a bit like a, and they're, then they're caught, like a, a parent catching a child looking at porn or a, in the social setting, someone blurting, blurting forth a profanity. Now, or it might be like teenagers caught doing something they shouldn't be doing, or maybe someone's caught in a lie, or someone becoming so angry that they take a swing at someone else. Just kind of something that, that comes up and, and bubbles up. Now, I'm not excusing any of those, and there's certainly deep root behind them, but it's, it's just a manifestation of sin. You're like, oh, man, I was, I was caught in that. And what Paul says to those in Galatia is that you should seek to restore such a one. So deal with that sin and help them with it. Don't, don't like plaster on the bull, billboard and say, oh, so-and-so did this, looking for the world to see. It's not like... But it's coming alongside and restoring and helping guide people really to, to the gospel and, and where forgiveness is. Um, but it's also here, we're talking about the idea of restoring. It's a Greek word, katartizo. Secular Greek, it talks about setting a bone. In biblical Greek, it's used uh, about the disciples who are mending their nets. 
It's a fixing word. And the context here of a, of a sinning brother is to, to, to take the burden of their sin, to help them with that, to, to, to bear their burden, to take it off by helping, helping them, pointing it out so maybe they confess their sin before the Lord, forgiving the hurt of what the sin has caused, and maybe help them through that. And if someone else is involved in the relationship, seeking to repair that broken relationship so someone could be restored, someone could be fixed from their sin. And Paul calls upon those who are spiritual to engage in such a work. You can see it right there in verse 1, right? Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. It's a loaded word, actually, because Paul has spoken a lot about the Spirit in the last half of of chapter 5. And I just want to read the last half of chapter 5 so you get get the thrust of of just this buildup about how much he's talking about spirit led people. Like, look at verse 16. But I say, excuse me, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here Paul sets up a contrast between the Spirit and the flesh. Walking by the Spirit is the ways of God. Walking by the flesh is walking your own ways. The one is controlled by the Spirit of God. The other is controlled by your own passions and desires, which we see in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. In other words, right, the Spirit of God is leading you. You walk in the ways of God. But if you're not being led by the Spirit of God, you walk in the ways of the flesh. And these two are like diametrically opposed. You're, You're walking this way or you're walking this way, and there is a battle. And the deeds of the flesh he describes in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Here's a list of sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are social sins. These are sins against other people, sins that are hurtful to other people. They are selfish sins, sins, and predominantly, maybe more than half of them, the idea is that I want something, but I'm not getting that thing, so I'm going to do whatever I can do to manipulate the situation so I can get what I want. Which, by the way, anytime you yell at somebody or argue with somebody, it's because you want something, and you think that if you raise your voice and yell, that you can get what you want. People make you angry. Why do you fight and quarrel, James says in James chapter 4. It's because your own passions, your desires that aren't being met. That's why you fight and quarrel, because you want your desire. And that's much of what, what these are, right? The, uh, um, the divisions, right? The divisions, because I want something, you want, want something. Or rivalries, well, I want something, you want something. Or fits of anger, jealousy. It's all about wanting something. It's all about the desires of the flesh that's not being met. And so there's, there's great conflict in, among people. The spirit-led life, however, is different. And this is the spiritual man that Paul is calling, the, the spiritual one, to restore the sinning brother. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And one helpful thing there is that it's a capital S Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the thing that the Spirit of God produces in the light, life of a believer. And, and they produce these things because the flesh, verse 24, has been crucified. That's been killed. And then one walks in the ways of Christ in these all-familiar fruit of the Spirit. Seeking the good of others. Be patient. 
and kind and gentle and loving. I mean, those are all fruit of the Spirit. So the summary comes in verses 25 and 26. Again, this contrast between spirit and fleshly. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Living by the flesh, living by the Spirit. And so when you come to chapter 6, Paul calls upon those who are being led by the Spirit of God to restore those who have been caught in a transgression. And I, I trust now that you can see why Paul wants spiritual people to help in that because he says it must be done in a spirit of gentleness. Chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Let the spirit-guided person who is gentle, because when someone falls into sin, they need gentleness to try to bring them back, to guide them back. It's not the, the harsh anger that's going to bring people back from sin. It's the gentleness that will. Gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit. It's what needed to restore sinning brother. And a perfect picture of gentleness, restoring someone who's sinning, is in John chapter 8 when Jesus encountered the scribes and Pharisees who were provoked at this woman who was caught in adultery. The scribes and Pharisees were ready to stone the woman. And what was Jesus? Gentle. Uh, I, text doesn't say it, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had stones in their hands, cocked and ready to go. And Jesus? Squatting probably like an Asian squats. I can't do it. I can't quite do it. So if I hold on to here. So he's just kind of writing, writing in here. And they're all angry, and they're, they're talking to Jesus. And, and the idea of John 8 is even they continue to say, so what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? Jesus, what do you say? She's caught in adultery. What do you say? Law says we should stone her. Jesus is quiet. Finally stood up, and his voice surely was gentle. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And then the text says he went right back down Right back down to right being on the ground, just like this. Just seeing what they're going to do. And then, one by one, oldest to the youngest, the oldest had wisdom, dropped their stones, and they left. All were gone, and Jesus was alone with a woman. And Jesus said, Woman, where are they? Who have condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. That's a great picture of restoration in gentleness. It's the wisdom of Jesus on display. Seeing these out of control people, but he's the one in control and gentle. And I think it's the perfect application of Galatians 6.1. So if you see someone sin, you who are spiritual restore such a one. Now, that's not an excuse to say, oh, I'm not spiritual. I walk in the flesh. I have no obligation upon that. I will say that's not an excuse. Parents, you all have a responsibility to restore your sinning children. And if you just wait until you're spiritual, well, your children may never be restored properly. You have a responsibility to be gentle in restoring your children. Parents who yell at their children are not gentle. And that will reap the fruit of your reward. You're doing it badly if you're yelling at your children. Because when your children go astray, they need a gentleness to restore them. 
And the gentleness will do things a bit differently. A couple weeks ago when I was at, at Southern Seminary, I forget what day it was, but I had grabbed my lunch and had a lot of work to do and was thinking about just holding up in the cafeterias where I, I got my food. So a bunch of students around and, and I didn't really come with anybody, so I was on my own. I thought about holding up in the corner and kind of doing some computer work, but I said, what am I doing? I'm down here. It should be good to network people, encourage people, be encouraged by them. And so I found someone sitting by himself and I said, hey, can I have a seat here? And he kind of said, well, okay. And then he quickly said, well, my wife is going to come and join us. She's, gonna, she's, just, he's, she's coming here maybe five, ten minutes or so. I said, it's okay with me if it's okay with you. And he said it was okay. And so I, I learned about him. And uh, pretty soon his wife came with uh, a two-year-old girl. It was her first child, and they're expecting another one. And they found out that I was the older, mature one who had five children, and they're, they're older. So they're, they're working through, like I remember when we had our first one, Krista, who was two years old, um, we were thinking a lot about discipline, like, like how, do we, how do we discipline our, our child, and um, like how do we do that, and I remember us asking and really studying the book of Proverbs, and, and we came down with really um, three principles, one is if you love your child, you'll discipline your child, I think it's, it's Proverbs 23, 13, Proverbs 13, so whatever, um, but he who hates his son spares the rod. And so we, we, just, we just did a study on Rod through Proverbs, and that was one thing. Okay, we love them, we want, need to discipline them. But we also saw in Proverbs this whole wise foolishness motif. And um, in fact, even the scripture says that the, the uh, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline removes it from him. We're like, oh, Proverbs twenty nine fifteen, And then Proverbs, um, that was Proverbs twenty two fifteen. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen says... The rod and reproof give wisdom. So there's something about disciplining your child which will remove foolishness and impart wisdom. And we just determined that with our children, we're going to gauge things through the eye of wise and foolish behavior. And when they're foolish, we need to drive the foolishness out of them when they need wisdom. And so when they're foolish, that's when they would be disciplined. Not childish, okay? Foolish. It's our categories still to today. And, um, and then I said, well, that's what you're aiming for. You're aiming for wise children. Better than that, you're aiming for children who walk in the truth, Third John 4. So I, I kind of gave him whatever my five-minute soliloquy on uh, child rearing of the, all this vast that we learned, all funneled down into these, these little principles. And they were appreciative, and, and they were, were teachable. And, and he, but here's the deal. At the end of it, I said, you know what? I really enjoyed disciplining our, my children. I said, not that the event of disciplining was so pleasant in and of itself. But almost always after disciplining my children, they left my presence happy. They felt secure in my love. They felt prayed for. We always prayed before God. They were directed to Christ. They always had hope. And and they always knew that dad was never, ever, ever going to bring that up again. So their transgression was totally dealt with and done with. In fact, I can remember only once it's SR, a battle I had with him that he didn't leave, return happy. But other than that, I would say almost every other time, our children left a disciplining event happy and joyful. Because it was done. And, 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 and I saw that, and it gave me great joy to see my children growing in wisdom. And I'd just say this, what, what took place in the confines of my home ought to take place in the life of the church. Now a little bit different than discipline here in the church, but meaning this, is that when people who are caught in transgression 
other people should come along and see that and help restore them out of that. And, and when you see people grow and confess their sin and come to, come to Christ and see Him in a greater way, they're just great joy all around. And it's a very rewarding thing, though <clears throat> in the midst of it, it can be very difficult. But that is the application of what Paul's getting at, of bearing one another's burdens, helping people deal with the burden of the sin in their lives, helping to bear that, right, by, by pointing them to Christ and pointing them to the gospel. Because this whole illustration about taking their sin off their shoulders and putting on yours, it doesn't, doesn't quite work, right, because I can't bear their sins, but the good news is this, of the gospel, is that Jesus has borne our sins. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so, as we deal with, with those who are caught in a transgression, we seek to take their burden and, and show them how you put it on Christ, who bore our sins. And the good news is this, Jesus wants to carry our burdens. 1 Peter 5.7 tells us to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus cares for us. Therefore, he's a willing burden carrier. And he's a better burden carrier than any burden carrier you have ever imagined. When Yvonne and I went to Nepal and India recently, and uh, I told you this before, but we're carrying our backpacks and the locals would have nothing of it. They, they, they don't want the the Americans, to be carrying this. No, so they took our backpacks and they took our bags and they carried them is what they did. They were very willing burden bearers. But if we'd had a lot of luggage beyond what they got to carry, they couldn't have carried it. But the good news is that Jesus can carry all of our baggage regardless of how big it is. David says in Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Right, because when the burdens are cast on Jesus, they go away the reality of the gospel right sins are as far as the east is from the west as far as the depth of the ocean is and what you put on jesus never ever comes back so rock valley bible church let's come alongside with those the burdens of sin and lead them to jesus and and let's show them that when that burden's lifted lifted the the sin is gone and relationships are stored and restored and let's understand this great thing with that, however, comes a warning to the end of verse 1 and verses 3 through 5. We're going to look at that just real, real quick. It says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the command is verse 2, the application is verse 1, and then our warning comes here at the end of verse 1 and verses 3 through 5. But it says this, keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted, right? In other words, there is a spiritual danger of helping people with their burdens, and a spiritual danger is pride and arrogance, thinking that you are the righteous one, thinking that you're a scribe or a Pharisee. The Bible says in Luke 18 that these people trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. See, it wasn't the Pharisee who stood up and said, God, I thank you that I'm so good. It was the publican who was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the proper view. And when you help restore people from their sin, you, you point them to Jesus, and you, you see them sin, and you didn't do that sin, there's, there's a degree where you can become like a Pharisee. And there's a warning in that, and that's the exact warning that Paul is giving in here. Watch yourself, lest you be tempted into that same sin. In fact, even when you maybe hear confession of sins, I don't know, I, 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 says, I do not think it's an accident that the 
Catholic priests who hear confession have gone on to commit all those horrible sins that they did. Because they're hearing that, they're being the high pious one, they're forgiving those sins, but it's in their minds, and I think they are tempted by those things as well. So they hear all that dirt and grime and muck, and, and you can be involved as well. So you see people sin, you can be tempted by that. But there's also an arrogance, right? Verse 3, that's what it's talking about. If anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Or you might say, if anyone thinks him righteous, when really he is unrighteous, like all of us are unrighteous, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. I think that's all getting at this, getting at this idea about being arrogant, that they're the sinner and I'm not, and to the detriment of your soul. So you could be restoring people and it not helping you. And over the years, this is what I've noticed. I've noticed that, that often those who most loudly condemn the sinner are often those with the most sin to hide. Josh Duggar comes to my mind. Working for Family Research Council, advocating pro-family, pro-Christian values, being high profile, and yet we know the muck of his life, the skeletons in his his life. Uh, I think about Jesse Jackson comes to my mind. Uh, President Clinton has this affair with Monica Lewinsky, and Jesse Jackson's coming in helping President Clinton. You know, at that very time, he fathered an illegitimate child. Just... I think that is, that is true. So beware of those who, who don't understand their own sin and poke down upon the sins of others. There could be lots to hide. Jesus said it this way, Judge not, lest you be judged. For with that judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your own brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And Jesus says, God will see right through that. If you're the hypocrite condemning people for things that you have in your own life, God have mercy on you. So as we bear our burdens, let's do so carefully, looking at ourselves, lest we succumb to spiritual pride. And, And especially when things go well with your restoration work. And when you see your children turning from their sin, when you see a, a friend turning from their, their sin, you can be so happy. Because like, people are walking in the ways of God and you can kind of become arrogant thinking that you've got it all figured out and you're walking right with God. You've got this magic thing. But I just say this, when people do turn, it is a joyous day. But when people don't turn, it's equally a sad day. And, and a question that Galatians 6.1 says, doesn't answer is this. Well, what happens when you seek to restore someone caught in their transgression and they ignore your counsel? What happens when people refuse to repent? Because what we see here in chapter 6, verse 1, is kind of like the very first introductory sin people fall into and, and quickly restored. But what happens if they, if they continue on their way? And restoration doesn't take place. Well, the answer to that question comes in Matthew 18. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We were there a few weeks ago. We talked about forgiving one another because of the encounter that Peter had with Jesus. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77, which might be 77 or 490, 70 times 7. It's a lot. 
But you say, what prompted that question? There's a reason why Peter went to forgiveness. It's because he's talking about the matter of forgiveness and restoration. And that really begins, let's verse, verse 12, <clears throat> Matthew 18, 12. Well, in verse 10, he's talking about these little ones, talking about young believers, talking about maybe even children. Um, and, and then he says in verse 12, well, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. Here you see the joy of restoration. A shepherd, this is a parable, a shepherd, 100 sheep, one goes astray. And, and he goes after that one that's gone astray and brings it back. And when he brings it back, he's got more joy over that one than he's got over that 99. Or Jesus said it um, in, in Luke 15 with the prodigal son, before the prodigal son. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Because there's joy in heaven because God delights to see those who are lost coming to him. It's not the physician who needs a healer, but it's those who are sick. And, and when they come, there's joy in heaven. And that's what verse 14 is talking about. God's, God's will isn't that he, he takes pleasure when people perish in their sin. No, it's, it's, it's God's desire, God's delight when people do it. He doesn't delight when people perish in their sin. And so we, when, when a brother goes astray, there's no delight for us. And Jesus instructs us in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, against you is debated whether that's in the text or not, but if your brother sins, right, you see a sin, go and tell him his fault. This is, assuming Galatians 6, 1, gently, you're spiritual, you're walking in, in the spirit, you're coming and gently trying to, to bring that uh, to bear. Privately is what verse 15 brings in. That's, a, that's a, a gentle way of doing things privately rather than publicly, seeking to deal with the matter alone. And when there's restoration, your brother is gained. And no one else needs to know about that little encounter. It can be a quiet sort of thing. That's Galatians 6. But, in fact, that's what it says. Right? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And there's great rejoicing is the idea because they've turned from their sin. But, verse 16... If that's not the case, take one or two others along, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And the idea here is, is this. Okay, so I'm trying to restore someone, but they're not taking my counsel. And you bring a couple others along simply to say, I, am I seeing this right? Because there might be a way that I'm not seeing it right and they're seeing it right. But when you have two or three that come along, it's like, okay, yeah, we're okay. Yeah, we're all seeing this right, and we're coming to someone, and you're upping the pressure. No longer is a private thing, but now a couple people know about it. It's not a personal vendetta that you have against your brother. It's others that that can clearly see. Yes, we all see this the same way. There's there's sin, and uh, we're coming to someone, and we're seeking restoration. Right? We're seeking forgiveness. We're seeking to restore. We're seeking to. Fix them, if you will, right? Bring, solve any problem with the sin is caused, right? Mend relationships, uh, whatever you can. And uh, if they repent, the implication here is that you've, you've won your brother, and that's all the further it should go. But then the progression continues in verse 17. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it even to the church. And the idea here is an, an ever-increasing circle. It's a, if he doesn't listen to one and doesn't listen to two or three, or 
than, than just bigger. And it's what size the church. I mean, the churches in the New Testament could be small, they could be 10, they could be 15, they could be 100, but you just, you just expand that circle where, wherever you go. Um, you tell the whole church. And the aim of telling the church is for restoration. Verse 17, if you refuse to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. And then it says, if he refuses to listen even in the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The, the implication here, though, is if he does listen to the church, what a wonderful thing that he comes back into the fellowship of the church and there's a wonderful day of rejoicing. There's more joy over a sinner who repents than over 99 that, that go astray. Because the gospel's evident. Evident in, in his or her life and evident in anyone else's life that they accept them, they bring them in. 